Father, we are weak, we are small, we are needy people. Father, we need your grace, we need your mercy, we need the power of your work in our lives. And Father, you have promised those very things. You've shed the blood of Jesus Christ out for us so that we would be made right with you and every promise of your word would be yes and amen to those of us who trust in Jesus. And so God, in the places of our life, the deepest, darkest, hardest places that we bring here today, would you give us faith to trust you more there? Would you let us see Jesus this morning from your word and give us faith to trust him more? And Lord, we know we're not the only people gathered in a place like this. Father, we know there are those joining us online. We pray that you'd bless them and meet them where they are today. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout this community who are gathered in churches who are not our competition. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Specifically, we pray for Joshua Smith and True Life Church in Melbourne. Father, I pray you'd pour your spirit out on Josh. Lord, give him the fullness of your spirit as he proclaims your word. And may the people of God who are True Life Church be filled with the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ and go out on a mission of mercy to make Jesus known. Lord, we love you. We look to you. Be our teacher and our guide. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, as we continue our, our study here, verse by verse through the gospel of Mark, we'll pick up where we left off last week in Mark Chapter 7. I was reminded this week, um, 25 years ago, I preached every single night for over a week at a small church in South Texas. The pastor had not been a pastor very long at all, and I was only 20 years old at the time. And in spite of both of us being complete and total newbies, God showed up. It was amazing. It was an incredible week where every day the pastor and I would gather with deacons and pray for the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit in those services where this young 20-year-old who did not know how to preach was preaching. And every night, guys, God showed up and did a powerful work. It was really amazing. And one day that week, a young guy from the church reached out to the pastor to let him know that through the week, God had been renewing his faith. He had been experiencing the power of God, and he'd also been experiencing an ear infection that wouldn't go away. So in the renewal of faith, he asked if he could be a part of our prayer meetings before the services so that he could be anointed with oil and ask God for healing of his ear infection. And so the next night, we gathered in a room with the deacons. We placed that young man in a chair in the center of a circle, and no one knew what to do next because I'm pretty sure in that small Baptist church, no one had ever anointed anyone with oil. So the pastor, being the leader, proceeded to take out a bottle of olive oil and pour it into a container beside the young man. And he said, I really don't know what to do next, but I figure if we're going to anoint someone with oil, we should anoint the part that's hurting. Well, 
I immediately thought of a dozen medical conditions where that logic would break down really fast. But I wasn't the pastor and I hadn't gone to seminary. And so I just followed his lead. So one by one, each man stepped forward, dipped his finger into the container of oil, then plunged his finger into the young man's ear. Guys, by the time it was my turn to anoint him with oil, this poor guy's ear was so full of oil, we would have needed a Ford F-150 dipstick to get an accurate reading. I'm not kidding. This guy was dripping with olive oil out of that poor infected ear. Seriously, though, it was, it was a beautiful moment in some ways, but it was weird and it was awkward for everyone in the room. And I wish you could have seen the eyes of the guy who kept getting jabbed with oil-soaked fingers into his infected ear. The next night showed up and someone asked him, hey, man, is your ear any better? He said something like, what? I can't hear you. My ear's full of oil. I, I can't remember exactly what he said. It was something about how much oil was still left in his ear. And I had to leave town before I got the full report. So that will always be a cliffhanger story in my life. So why would I tell that story? Well, there are two reasons. First, I have been waiting 25 years to tell that story, and our text this morning is the only place in the Bible where it makes sense, and so had to take advantage of this morning's text. The second reason, though, seriously, is that when you come to the life of Jesus, what you find is that Jesus does things that are even more awkward than what we did to that young man in South Texas, and sometimes you are left scratching your head and wondering, Why would Jesus do it like that? What's going on there? And why, of all the ways he could do it, did Jesus choose to do it like that? And I want you to to have that in mind as we read our next passage of Scripture in this study of Mark. I think you'll see what I mean about both of those reasons to tell that story. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, it says this. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and Sidon and went, through, and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. I didn't know how Christ-like we were being at the time, but here it is. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, 
That is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of God for us this morning. And I hope you see what I was talking about just a moment ago. And I'm not just talking about the ear thing, about the way these encounters initially feel kind of weird and pretty awkward. In the first story, a desperate mom comes to Jesus begging him to heal her demon-possessed daughter, and Jesus gives her one of the wildest responses he gives anyone in all of Scripture. He basically calls her a dog and tells her to let the children eat first. And then in the second story, a deaf man with a speech impediment is brought to Jesus. And the people around him had begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. But Jesus does way more than just laying his hand on the dude's shoulder. He sticks both fingers into the guy's ear, then spits and touches his tongue. And I don't know how you define an awkward personal encounter, but that's about the peak of Mount Awkward in my book, right? Touch your tongue with my spit-soaked fingers. So the question becomes, what's going on here, right? Like All this awkward weirdness, how, how do we make sense of all of it? Well, what's going on here? Let me just show you a couple things that are very easy to overlook that are huge details about our text. Look at verse 24, the first verse we read. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Stop right there. The first words of our text are, and from there. From where? Well, from the confrontation that Jesus just had in the first half of this chapter with the religious leaders of the Jews who were upset that Jesus allowed his disciples to eat with unwashed hands. The the Jewish leaders, remember, they said that people were unclean and they were unacceptable to God unless they went through all of these ritualistic hand washings. And they didn't think that Jesus should be around those kinds of unclean People. And you know what Jesus did, if you were here last week? Jesus shut them down quickly by saying, listen, people are unclean because of any external thing about them or their hands being dirty. He says, we're unclean because there's sin that dwells deep in our hearts. And until the sin in our hearts is taken care of, no amount of external religion will do us any good. That was last week's message. As you could tell, I almost preached it once again. It's so powerful. But then after Jesus makes that powerful point, what does he do next? Well, The first verse of our text, he goes straight to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were two Gentile cities that lay outside of the borders of the nation of Israel. They were notoriously evil places. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 10, verse 13, Jesus references these two cities as basically the poster children for wicked, unrepentant cities for the people who would have received this from Mark 2,000 years ago. They would have known about Tyre and Sidon, and they would have known about the evil wickedness of those cities. And, and hearing Jesus go from a place with the super religious people straightway to the place filled with sinful, wicked people would be sort of like us hearing that a pastor left a church service to head straight over and hang out on the Las Vegas Strip. It's kind of a shocking contrast of settings. Well, look at verse 31. It says, Then, after that encounter in Tyre and Sidon, 
Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, where does he go next? Well, he goes to the Decapolis. That word just means 10 cities. It was a region of 10 major cities that were occupied by Gentiles, and it was about 120 miles away from Tyre and Sidon. So let's put all of those little details together. Get this. Jesus leaves the confrontation about him hanging out with supposedly unclean people, and then he straightway goes 120 miles out of his way on foot to heal two Gentile people. And in case you don't know, The Jewish people considered Gentiles to be completely and entirely and unequivocally unclean. So Jesus being around Gentiles from Sin City would be a thousand times more offensive to the religious Jews than his disciples not washing their hands. But that's the very first place Jesus goes after his confrontation with those religious leaders. He goes straight out of Israel. Leaves the country entirely. He goes to unclean, sinful places filled with unclean, sinful people so that he can show his mercy to a couple people that he has divine appointments within those sinful, wicked cities. You know what he's doing? He's extending his mercy beyond the Jews to the people of this world. And I believe that gives us the big idea for this morning. Here's today's big idea. Jesus came to extend his mercy to the people of this world. Jesus came to extend his mercy to the people of this world. Guys, Jesus came to this earth on a mission of mercy. Mercy that would be available to the people of every tribe and tongue and nation. Listen to the way that Paul says this exact same thing and describes this dynamic in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. He says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the nation of Israel, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Guys, Jesus came to be a servant to the nation of Israel. We'll see more about that in just a second. But his ultimate purpose for coming was bigger than just Israel. It wasn't just a regional religion that Jesus wanted to start. He wanted to start a movement of mercy for all the nations of the earth, Jews and Gentiles, so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation People to the ends of the earth would have reason to glorify God because of the mercy that Jesus would show them, that he would show us. Guys, that's why the global mission of Jesus is so important for us. Guys, being a part of what God is doing among the nations to show his mercy to them through Jesus for his ultimate glory. Guys, that's what global mission is all about. That's why we have joy in sending David and Catherine Hodge and their family from this nation to Malawi to make the gospel of Jesus known. That's why later this year, we'll have joy sending a a support team to serve alongside them in Malawi. 
Malawi. That's why we're sending teams to Nicaragua and Guatemala and other missionary partners around the world. Why? Because we want to be a part of what God is doing in this world. And what is he doing in this world? He is displaying his glory by showing mercy to people to the very ends of the earth. And at the same time, we need to remember we are the ends of the earth. Here's what I mean by that. Well, we want to be a part, and I I could focus, and this would be its own sermon. We want to be a part of what God is doing to show mercy to the nations of the earth. We can't forget that as we gather in this room, we're a bunch of Gentiles for the most part. Did you know you were a Gentile? If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And Jesus came to show the Gentiles mercy. That means if you're a Gentile, Jesus came to show you mercy, came to bring his healing mercy to you. He came by his mercy to give you mercy through his death on the cross so you could be forgiven of your sin to the glory of God. Jesus came to give mercy to you through his resurrection so that he could raise you up to a brand new kind of life to the glory of God. Jesus came to give you mercy by sending his Holy Spirit to live in you and enable you to have the life of Christ flowing through you to the glory of God. Jesus came to give mercy to you by enabling you to be adopted into God's family, to have heaven as your eternal home, to live with a future and a hope to the glory of God. Friend, listen to the word of Jesus. He came on a mission, a mission of mercy, of mercy to you, to all those who will turn to Jesus, including the people in this room. There are some who hear those acts of mercy, forgiveness of sin, the power to live a new transformed life, the life of Christ flowing through you by his spirit, a heavenly eternal home, a hope for future glory. You hear those things and you think your heart aches for that kind of reality. Well, listen, that can be yours because Jesus came to give it to you by his mercy. But here is a startling reality. You will not receive the mercy of Jesus unless you turn to Jesus for mercy. Amen. Guys, that's the reality. Everyone will not experience the fullness of Christ's mercy. Guys, I want to be very careful. I can't go way down this road, but there is a way that everyone on earth experiences the mercy of God. Did you know that? Well, it's true because you've not been struck and killed by a lightning bolt yet because of your sin. And that's mercy. Everyone on earth lives under the mercy of God in a certain way. And I'm not talking about that general mercy to all people in the world. I'm talking about this special healing, restoring, saving mercy that Jesus brings to those who turn to him. Think of the Pharisees. They come to Jesus, but they don't come to him a certain way. And in the beginning of this chapter, we find they don't experience that saving, restoring mercy. They reject it because they don't come to Jesus a certain way. And guys, that's what these two stories then become for us. They provide insight into what it looks like to come to Jesus, to approach Jesus 
for the mercy that only he can give in a way that allows you to experience the mercy that only he can give. And I'm talking primarily about these two stories being an illustration, not of how we manipulate Jesus to be healed of our cancer or manipulate Jesus to get our job back, but how we come to Jesus for the saving, restorative mercy that he provides at the cross that he gives to those who trust in him through faith. And so what I want to do with the remainder of our time together is I want to walk through these two stories. I want to show you two things that we see in both of these stories that illustrate the kind of heart that will experience the mercy of Jesus in a way the Pharisees didn't. And in a way where they will experience the saving, transforming, changing, hope-filled, eternal glory, mercy that only Jesus can provide. Here's the first thing we see. The mercy of Jesus is experienced by people who hope only in Jesus. Look at verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Stop right there. You see this. This woman comes to Jesus. She falls down at his feet. She begs. That's the word. She begs him to do what only he can do. Listen to the way that Matthew gives us an account of what happens here. Matthew chapter 15, verses 22 through 25 says this, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. So I keep using that word, mercy. She's calling out for mercy, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him. They begged him for something, saying, Get rid of her. Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Here's what happens. This woman is begging Jesus for mercy so much that the disciples finally say, hey, will you just send her away? She will not stop. Why? She's relentless. She will not leave the feet of Jesus because she's convinced that her only hope Her only hope for the kind of powerful mercy that could heal her child and change her life. The only hope for that kind of powerful mercy comes from Jesus. You see a similar thing in the second story with the deaf and mute man. Look down at verse 32. It says, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And look at this. And they begged him. They use the same word to describe the same dynamic. They begged him to lay his hand on him. They begged Jesus. Just like this desperate mother, they know something. And here's what they know. Our only hope for the kind of powerful mercy that can heal our friend is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And since they come to Jesus as their only hope for mercy, guess what they receive? The powerful mercy of Jesus. He works in their lives in a way that only he can. So let me just stop and ask you this. Are you hoping in Jesus alone to give you and provide for you the powerful mercy that you need? Well, what about the forgiveness of your sin and acceptance with God? Deep in your heart is your only hope to be forgiven and accepted by God the mercy of Jesus that was given to you by his death at the cross or 
Inwardly, do you sort of also hope that you're acceptable to God because of your good works, your church attendance, your baptism, your confirmation? What about your hope for life change and transformation? Is the mercy of Jesus given to you by his indwelling spirit and his resurrection power, what you would say is my only hope that I will ever be changed and transformed and liberated from the patterns of my sin? Or do you get hope also by looking inwardly and thinking, well, I am also sort of self-disciplined or I have just read this self-help book and I think that's going to be a source of change. Well, what about your hope for meaning and satisfaction? All of us want to have meaning and satisfaction in life. Is the mercy of Jesus that makes you a new creation and causes you to have a new identity? Is, is the work of Jesus your hope? Or are you getting hope from other things like what people think about you or what this world can give you or what your work and career may mean or what your net worth actually is? Guys, what would it look like in your heart today if in your brokenness and your pain and your battle with sin and your search for meaning and transformation, you simply turned to Jesus right now and said this with all your heart, Jesus, I need your powerful mercy in me, in this place, for my forgiveness, for my salvation, for my change and transformation for my identity, for my meaning, for my satisfaction, for my future. Jesus, I need you. Only you can give me what I really need. You are my only hope. And Jesus, I am trusting in you. What would that look like for you this morning? The mercy of Jesus is experienced by people who hope only in Jesus and put no confidence in themselves or any other thing. Guys, The message of Christianity is this. It is Jesus, only Jesus. The mercy of Jesus is experienced not only by people who hope only in Jesus. The mercy of Jesus is experienced by people who are humble before Jesus. Look at verse 27 of our text. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Guys, this, I said earlier, is one of the more troubling statements that Jesus makes in the Gospels. I mean, why would he talk like this to a hurting mom who is desperate, desperate, to help her hurting child. Well, I got to tell you, before I, I, I try to explain a little bit of what is going on, I want you to know in advance, I am not going to remove from your minds all the ways that this statement could have been very offensive to this woman. And, and I don't think we're supposed to remove every way in which this statement is offensive or could have been to this woman. But Matthew's account, again, is helpful here because he actually includes something that Mark leaves out. Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, it says, Jesus answered her and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house 
of Israel. Guys, this is just another way of Jesus saying what we read earlier from Romans 15. He was sent to serve the Jewish people during his earthly ministry. So he's not being calloused here. What he's doing is even though it feels like he's being calloused, he's just saying his primary audience for his earthly ministry were the Jewish people. And another thing to know is that there were actually two, two words for dog in Jesus' day, okay? One word described the filthy, mangy mutts on the street that were a complete and total nuisance. Um, that's one of my dogs. The other word to describe a dog is the good, healthy dog that is a great family pet. That's the other one of my dogs. I won't tell you which one is which. But Jesus uses the word for a family pet When he talks about giving the children's food to dogs. And here's what I think he's doing. I think he's actually giving her an illustration. There wasn't dog food in ancient Israel. So you didn't go buy a bag of Alpo or whatever your dog food of choice might be. But when the family would sit down for dinner, what would happen is because food was scarce, the kids would need to eat the food first. You wouldn't starve the children and give the leftovers to your family pet, no matter how much you loved the family pet. So Jesus is being clear here in his order of ministry. His first mission was to the children of the house of Israel, because that was how God had ordained it would be, and that's how the Holy Scriptures said it would take place until Israel rejected him. But after that, the ministry of the gospel would extend to the ends of the earth. But guys, there are plenty of other ways Jesus could have said that same thing. That's why I said I can't remove all the ways this could have been offensive. Why would he choose to reference a dog even if it's a family pet? I don't know about you, but I don't find that to be very complimentary for you to call me a dog no matter how much you love yours. So why would Jesus use those words? Well, here's what I also believe. Not only is he showing the priority of his ministry, I believe he's also testing her heart. Here's what I mean by that. What did she ask for when she came to Jesus? Matthew specifically used the word. She asked for mercy. Guys, and by very definition, mercy is something that we don't deserve. Let me give you an illustration. When you get your paycheck... You probably don't think, man, what an act of mercy by my employer. They paid me for my work this week. You don't feel that way at all. You deserve your paycheck. You earned your paycheck. In a way, you could rightfully say you're entitled to your paycheck. If you deserve something or are rightfully entitled to something, guys, it's no longer mercy. So so how does she respond to what Jesus says when she asks for mercy? And he says, listen, I've got to give to the children of Israel what I've promised to the children of Israel, what they're entitled to according to the promise. Look at verse 28, Mark 7. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She doesn't get offended. She makes no demands. She isn't entitled in her heart. Here's what she is. She's a person who knows as well as anyone in the room that she doesn't deserve mercy. That's why she's asking for mercy. And that's what humility that receives mercy looks like. The mercy of Jesus is extended to humble people who know deep in their hearts they don't deserve mercy. Listen to James chapter 4 verse 6. 
It says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Guys, Jesus came to shed mercy, abundant mercy and grace to people who will bow in humility before Jesus and admit that they don't deserve anything but hell. And that's all that any of us actually deserve. He gives grace to humble people like that. But what does he do to the proud? It says he opposes them. Can you imagine having God opposed to you with all his power and all of his might and all of his righteous judgment. Can you imagine living forever in a standoff with almighty God where he is opposing you? Well, that is exactly what happens to those who will refuse to humble themselves before Jesus as Lord. God opposes the proud. He gives mercy and grace to the humble. And I hope if you look at the bigger picture of Mark 7, you see that's exactly what this chapter is laying out. It starts with proud Pharisees who resist Jesus, who try to get their way and are resisted by Jesus. But the humble people in this chapter... Not the righteous religious people that everyone thought was good, but the people like this woman who she knows she's so low, she's not even offended when Jesus calls her a dog. People who know Jesus could call you worse than that and be right. People like that, Jesus extends mercy. When we know that we are broken and we are sinful and we're not entitled to his blessing and we're not entitled to his grace. We are rebels and our only hope is not that we would work hard and earn it or be better than our neighbor. It's that Jesus would show us mercy. So where in your heart may there be pride today? Where might you need to be humbled? Where might you think you deserve mercy and grace? Where might you feel entitled to the blessings and gifts of God? If you want a place to start, where do you get upset with God when he doesn't give you the blessings you think you deserve? That's called pride. Guys, any attitude, Father, help us see it, that is, that is not an attitude of gratitude. It's not an attitude of humble thanksgiving to say, Jesus, I am not entitled to anything. Forgiveness, acceptance, heaven, blessing, power. I am not entitled to anything but eternity in hell. Any attitude apart from that is an attitude that is rejecting the mercy of God precisely because you don't think you need mercy from God. The the woman teaches us that the mercy of Jesus is experienced by people who are humble and know they don't deserve mercy. But the picture of humility that we get, the kind of humility that receives mercy. Look down at verse 32 and we'll end with this. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released. And he spoke 
plainly. Guys, so this deaf man has a, a speech impediment and he comes before the Lord Jesus to be healed. Now, here's the reality. We do not know how much he understood about what was going on. We don't know how much the people around him could communicate the details of what is going on. And God does not think we need those details to get the point. What he does tell us and what we do know is that Jesus takes this man aside privately. You know what that means? It means the man had to follow Jesus in humility not necessarily knowing where he was going. And then to add to it, he had to just stand there while Jesus stuck his fingers into his ears, pressing in to his place of greatest weakness and vulnerability. Just think about that. This guy is letting Jesus do this. He just stands there in front of Jesus. Essentially what he's saying with his actions, because he literally can't say it with his words, is Jesus, do whatever you want to do with me. Jesus, do, do whatever you want to do. I imagine the guy standing there thinking, how, how long is he going to have his fingers in my ears? And man, I, I, I really hope this does the trick. Right? But what happens? When Jesus takes his fingers out, the guy still can't hear. He doesn't hear until a couple of moves later. He's still standing there deaf. And Jesus, after putting his fingers in his ears, hasn't, hasn't even done the most awkward thing yet. Jesus spits. And in the context, it makes it seem like he spits on his fingers. And this guy sees Jesus do it because he's deaf, not blind. He sees Jesus just spit on his fingers. And then what does he do? He says he touches the man's tongue. Hold on just a second. You realize what's going on here, right? It means this guy, after having Jesus put his fingers in his ears, take them out, he still can't hear. This guy has to open his mouth and stick out his tongue for a guy he's never met, whose first move didn't work, and let Jesus touch his tongue with spit-soaked fingers, and he has to do it not knowing what's going to happen next. And guys, there are countless theories that egghead theologians want to bat around why Jesus would do it this way. Time will not permit us to go down all of those roads. The thing what I, I want you to see is, is that in all of that, what happens? This man simply yields to Jesus. Amen. Even, when, even when Jesus doesn't do what we would expect him to do, even when what Jesus did last didn't seem to work. Even when Jesus asks him to do something that none of us would naturally want to do, like let someone spit on their finger and touch us on the tongue, what are we seeing? What we're seeing is humility before Jesus that says with our lives, Jesus, show me what you want me to do. And by your power, I'll do it. And I'll trust you to give me power in your mercy. It's the kind of humility that says, Jesus, I don't understand you. I don't understand. 
understand what you're doing. I don't see what I'm hoping to see, but I'm willing to trust you. Jesus resists the proud, but he pours out abundant mercy for people who simply bow in humility before Jesus like that. So let me ask you this. How do you today need to bow in humility before Jesus? Have you ever placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and just acknowledge you can't save yourself? Willing to say, I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve to be accepted by God. I need mercy. And Jesus, I believe you lived a perfect life and died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the grave so that you could show me mercy and give me forgiveness and acceptance with God. Have you ever humbly bowed before Jesus and trusted him. Today, I pray, is your day. What about that place of obedience in your life where you're simply being called to trust Jesus by doing what he says, even when you don't understand what all he is doing in it? What what about that unexpected thing? that Jesus has done or allowed in your life that's causing you to doubt, that's causing you to fear? What would it look like in humility for you to bow before Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't need to understand you, but I am willing to trust you. Jesus, will you show me what you want me to do? And I will trust in your power to do it. Guys, Jesus came to extend mercy to the people of this world, including you. And his mercy is received by those who hope only in him as their savior and bow humbly before him as their Lord. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? And how is the Holy Spirit Stirring you to respond to the teaching of God's word. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, right now I want to encourage you to call on Jesus in prayer. Simply come before Jesus in prayer and acknowledge that you're a sinner. God, I have sinned. And I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve your acceptance. I need your forgiveness. And I believe Jesus lived in my place and died on the cross in my place so that he could forgive my sin and restore me to you. I'm trusting in Jesus. Pray that prayer of faith, turning to Christ. Call on Jesus for mercy today. For those of you who'd say, I am trusting in Jesus, what place of your heart is being tempted to hope in other things than Jesus for change and transformation, for meaning and satisfaction. Would you this morning just say, Jesus, my only hope is you. Not my job, not my family, not my strength, not my self-discipline, not my work or my money, not my government, not my leaders. My hope is Jesus. And what about the humility of your heart? In what place might you be experiencing pride that lives like you deserve the blessings, the mercy of God? Would you bow before Jesus?
She said, Jesus, I, I don't understand what you're doing, but I understand you know what you're doing, and I trust you. And is there a place of obedience where you're being called to just follow Christ, to obey him no matter what? Father, we want to respond by your spirit to the truth of your word. And Lord, it's with, I pray, humble hearts that we would acknowledge that we need Jesus. Father, we need mercy. We are broken and hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. And so, Lord, we confess that our only hope is Jesus. And I pray that we would have hope because we don't just need Jesus. We have him. He came. He came because he wants to give us mercy. Lord, we praise you for that. So I pray that every heart in this place and those joining us online would rejoice to the glory of God for the mercy that's ours in Jesus and bow before Jesus as Lord as we trust in Jesus as Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.